What is going on, Solo fam? My name is John Solo, and I love my dog. He's adorable, he's cuddly, he smells, you know, mostly fine. And the best part is I get to spend a huge portion of my week hanging out with him. But here's the thing, as much as I love Gunther and as happy as he makes me, he can't really do much. I know that's not his fault. He was bred to do exactly what he's doing now, sit there and look cute. But the point is, if there's some kind of emergency, then he's pretty useless. Unless that emergency is that I need some snugs. But if that's the case, I just call over my personal demon, Jerry, who's always lingering in the shadows. Fortunately though, there is a huge spectrum of dog breeds out there that are capable of some pretty incredible things, from leading the blind to sniffing out your stash faster than even your mom could. What may be the single greatest feat ever accomplished by dogs though, was the 1925 serum run, where sled dogs were used to transport antitoxin across 700 miles of deadly Alaskan landscape to save thousands of innocent lives from being lost to a diphtheria epidemic. It's an incredible story that's been cherished and celebrated by Americans for almost a century now. And right after the mission was deemed successful, the lead dog of the team that delivered the medicine, Balto, was hailed as a hero. He was featured in magazines, had a parade thrown for him, there was a statue erected in his honor in Central Park, and then there's the animated movie about him starring Kevin Bacon, which I assume is where most of my generation and younger heard about the serum run in the first place. Now, when it comes to the movie, it seems that most people have one of two responses. One, you saw it as a kid, absolutely loved it, and now it holds a place in your heart as one of the most underrated animated movies of that generation. Or two, you fucking despise it for how wildly inaccurate it is and its misrepresentation of Balto as the hero dog who saved the day. Oh yeah, did I forget to mention that there was another dog, Togo, who was much more important to the mission's success, but for some reason didn't get half the credit that Balto did? Well, now you know, and soon enough, you'll know the real story of the serum run, including the parts that Kevin Bacon wanted to stay hidden forever. Chapter one, the story we were told. Now, for those of you who haven't seen the Balto movie in a while or maybe ever, I wanna do a real quick recap. I realize not everybody needs or even wants it, so feel free to skip ahead, but this movie really is how a huge portion of young adults know this story, so I wanna use it as a reference point to compare and contrast. To put it simply, our protagonist, Balto, is a half dog, half wolf who doesn't fit in anywhere. His dream is to be a sled dog and he would definitely be great at it, but the humans living in the nearby town of Nome don't wanna give him a chance due to his wild nature. Nature. One day, there's an outbreak of diphtheria that infects all the children in town, but the only doctor in the area doesn't have any anti-venom. And to make matters worse, due to the harsh Alaskan weather conditions, the ports are closed and air travel is impossible. The only way for them to get the medicine in time is to use a team of sled dogs. And while the plan starts out okay and they successfully pick up the antitoxin, they end up crashing on the way back and the musher is left unconscious. Lucky for the children though, Balto finds the sled dogs, rallies them to his side, and and leads them through what has to be a billion deadly obstacles. Throughout these trials, Balto realizes his wolf heritage is a strength, not a weakness, and using his highly developed senses, he delivers the medicine just in time. All the chillins are saved, the town of Gnome lives happily ever after, and Balto goes on to get two whole sequels. Now this probably won't be much of a shock to you, but this movie got way more wrong than it did right. If you want a film that tells the story much more accurately, I would highly recommend you check out Togo on Disney+. Though if you're a dog owner, you should be warned that you're gonna cry some ugly tears by the end of it. Speaking from experience here. Chapter two, the outbreak. 
So the way this epic tale starts in real life is not with the introduction of an outcast wolf dog, but rather a doctor's appointment. Dr. Curtis Welch is the only doctor in the small town of Nome, Alaska, and is responsible for the health of 1,500 of its residents and the roughly 8,000 people living in the surrounding communities. In December of 1924, he diagnoses a patient with what he believes to be tonsillitis, but fears might be a much more dangerous disease called diphtheria. He decides to go with the more optimistic outlook because diphtheria is highly contagious and no one else in town was showing any symptoms, but he knew he had to stay on the lookout. Just a few years prior to this, in 1918, there was an influenza pandemic that wiped out half of Nome's population, so another outbreak could easily finish the job and even take out the areas around it before it's done. Well, sadly, in just over a month, the situation gets much more serious. Two children in town die and a concerning number of tonsillitis cases get reported. Then in January, two more kids die from what was undeniably diphtheria symptoms fever, weakness, and mucous membranes swelling up in their nose and throat that slowly made it impossible to breathe. And what makes these children's deaths especially tragic is that there was a diphtheria antitoxin that existed even back in 1925. The problem was Dr. Welch's supply expired the summer before, and while he did order more immediately after finding this out, the ports closed for winter before it could arrive. Now Welch was dealing with the exact scenario that he tried to find the remedy for months prior and the lives of 10,000 people hung in the balance, so he had to throw a Hail Mary pass if he wanted any hope of finding a solution. He sent out a radio telegram to all of the surrounding towns, to the territorial governor in the capital of Juneau, and to the U.S. Public Health Service in Washington, D.C. that read as follows. An epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. I am in urgent need of one million units of diphtheria antitoxin. Mail is only form of transportation. I have made application to Commissioner of Health of the Territories for antitoxin already. In that was the single most terrifying telegram that any of those people ever received. So now we fast forward a bit to the end of January. 20 more cases have been confirmed and 50 more people are at risk, so significantly more than just the 18 children who were sick in the cartoon. And while the US Health Department did find some antitoxin on the West Coast, it all had to be shipped to Seattle and take a train ride before it would even get to Alaska several weeks later. I have good news though. The Chief of Surgery at Anchorage Railroad Hospital found a small stash of units in storage that would be just just enough to hold the disease at bay until the bigger shipment arrived. The supply was immediately put in glass vials, wrapped in padded quilts for insulation, and then sealed into a metallic cylinder, not a wooden crate like in the movies. After this, it was handed directly to train conductor Frank Knight, who arrived in the town of Nanana, Alaska on January 27th. Chapter three, the strategy. After the problem of where are we gonna get this medicine was solved, the next obstacle that had to be overcome was how are we gonna get this medicine? I mean, sure, it was already on the train from Anchorage to Nanana, but that was still a 700 mile round trip to go pick it up. The ports were closed because of the ice, flying a plane in the harsh Alaskan weather with a storm brewing was not an option, and cars were nowhere near advanced enough to handle these conditions. So the only option they were left with was sled dogs. Now this is where the legendary dog trainer and breeder Leonard Seppala enters the scene. He and his team were already famous around the state for winning just about every race they entered, as well as their incredible bond with each other. Originally, Seppala volunteered to do the entire 674 mile run on his own, but the committee was like, 
Hang on a second, Psycho, let's brainstorm a bit. And the plan they agreed on was a relay race of multiple teams. Leonard was still going to cover the longest and most dangerous stretch over the frozen part of the Bering Sea, known as Norton Sound, but he wouldn't have to do the whole journey alone. So there you go, another big difference with the Balto movie. As much as Seppala pushed for it, there was definitely more than just one team responsible for the whole journey. Only here's the thing, there was still a bit of confusion over how many teams would be participating. When Leonard left town, he was under the impression that he would be meeting a dog sled team from Nanana in the town of Nulato, the exact midpoint between them. But not long after he took off, the governor called in and ordered they put together 20 dog sled teams that would each cover a much more manageable distance of around 30 miles apiece. I know, poor guy thought he was giving them some good news, not saying, hey, you just needlessly sent one of the best dog trainers to ever live to his death. And get this, the route that Seppala was taking, designed to be the shortest and most efficient for his long journey, avoided all the towns and stops that had telephone and telegraph systems. So their only hope for getting this message to Seppala and stopping him from risking his life by riding hundreds of unnecessary miles was for another rider to catch him out on the trail. Chapter 4, The Journey. So depending on how detailed we want to get, this could be a very long section. That medicine traveled 670 miles, exchanging hands with 20 individuals along the way, and each of them faced their own unique set of challenges. As much as I'd like to pay respect to all of these men who risked life and limb just for a chance at saving people who most of them never even met, it's just not possible to accurately talk about each of their respective journeys without making this video like an hour long. That being said, I do have some of the more messed up details highlighted so you can have a better idea of what these guys went through. To start, the first musher, Wild Bill, left Nanana with the medicine on January 27th at 9 p.m. in temperatures as low as negative 62 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, I didn't even know it could get that cold. Bill didn't make it through without picking up some scars, though. He contracted hypothermia despite running next to his sled to keep warm. Parts of his face were black and blue from frostbite, and three of his dogs died. Still, he made it to the end, and the serum was handed off to Edgar Calland, whom, when he reached his destination, had to have warm water poured over his hands so he could get them off the handlebar. The serum continued to change hands from one musher to the next until it reached Miles Gonignan at Unalakli, about two-thirds of the way through the total journey. And it was at this point that Miles had two choices. He could try to cross the frozen Norton Sound and save an entire day of travel, or continue on the designated path to Shaktalik, where the next rider was waiting in case Leonard Seppala didn't show up. Noticing a storm forming overhead, he decided the best route would be to not ride across a frozen lake that could break apart at any minute, and he arrived in Shaktulik at 3 p.m. on January 31st after riding through negative 70 degree temperatures in whiteout conditions where he handed off the serum to Henry Ivanov. Meanwhile, our boy Seppala went with the first option and was actually riding over the frozen water, praying that he'd make it across before the storm got too severe. Luckily, he did make it and in a truly remarkable coincidence, rode right by Ivanov who had to pull off the path because his dogs got tangled up after chasing a reindeer. After seeing Seppala cruise right by him, he shouted, the serum, the serum, I have it here. And Seppala, who still thought he had 100 miles to go before he could turn around, took the medicine from him and sped off towards Nome. And this is where the story goes from insane to unbelievable. Remember how I said that Seppala almost didn't make it across the Norton Sound because of the storm? Well, this crazy 
monster decided to risk his life crossing it again, this time after the ice had already broken apart. Yeah, see, I thought this part of the Togo movie was Disney putting their own overly dramatic spin on the event, but no, this really did happen only in real life. It was even scarier because he had to cross it at night in pitch black conditions. If it weren't for his lead dog, Togo, who led him in a straight line through that darkness, Seppala and the entire population of Gnome likely would have died. Fortunately, that is not how this story ends. Seppala made it across, had to ascend 5,000 feet up Little McKinley Mountain, then arrived in Gallivan, where he gave the medicine to Charlie Olson. Charlie brought the medicine from Gallivan to Bluff, acquiring severe frostbite on his hands in the process, then gave it to Gunnar Kassen, whose team was led by Balto, the purebred Siberian Husky, not Wolf Dog. And while Balto receives a lot of flack for getting all the spotlight while not covering nearly as much ground as Togo did, his leg of the relay was still a brutal one. After waiting over three hours for the storm to calm down so the medicine wouldn't be damaged from the cold, Gunnar took off towards Solomon in negative 70 degree temperatures and whiteout conditions. Visibility was so bad that at times he couldn't even see the dogs that were closest to his sled and he ended up passing his drop off point without even realizing it until he was miles away. What makes that fact really sting is that this next leg of the relay that he didn't even have to do was much worse. He had to cross overflowing rivers, massive snow drifts, and at one point the winds were so bad that they blew his sled over and he lost the cylinder full of medicine in the snow. The guy actually had to take off his gloves in negative 70 degrees and feel around for the container with his bare hands. Then at 3 a.m. when he finally got to his stop, point safety, the next driver was still asleep because Gunner, Balto, and the team made such good time. Figuring it would take too long for the last driver to suit up and prep his team, Kassen chose to carry the serum for the remaining 25 miles to Nome, which he reached on February 2nd at 5.30 a.m. Miraculously, after Welch thawed out the medicine, it was still viable, and he used it to save the lives of dozens of Nome's residents. Chapter 5, The Aftermath. As you might expect, this story was a huge deal when it happened. News outlets all over the world were keeping people updated on the medicine's progress and the status of Nome as case numbers rose and fell. Every musher involved in the race was considered a hero. President Calvin Coolidge gave each of them a gold medal and the territory of Alaska awarded them $25 each which is definitely not enough money. In today's dollars, that's not even 400 bucks. Wild Bill had frostbite on his face, motherfucker. Get him a band or get the fuck out of here. If I were his agent, that's what I would have said. Now, when it comes to the dogs, here's where the controversy comes in. Since Gunner and Balto were the ones who delivered the serum, they became the faces of the event and got most of the glory. They toured the west coast of the country for an entire year. The mayor of Los Angeles gave Balto a bone-shaped key to the city, and in December of 1925, a statue of Balto was put up in Central Park. Meanwhile, Seppala and many others back in Nome thought that this wasn't fair. While Balto was an important member of the team, it was Togo who covered the most distance, 260 miles, and as you saw, it wasn't an easy 260 miles. Seppel is even quoted saying, it was almost more than I could bear when the newspaper dog Balto received a statue for his glorious achievements. But I'm actually here to play devil's advocate to that argument, just a little bit, because contrary to popular belief, Togo got plenty spotlight of his own. He and Seppel also went on tour all over the country. They were in a Lucky Strike cigarette ad and they appeared multiple times in front of huge crowds at Madison Square Garden 
which just so happened to be managed by a former resident of Gnome at that time. Don't get me wrong, I definitely agree that Togo deserved more credit than Balto, I'm just saying there's a lot of folks who seem to believe that he was completely swept under the rug when that just isn't true. Also, there may be another reason why Balto got more of the attention. See, in the Togo movie, they play it like the reporter on scene was in a rush to get the word out, so he just took down the name of the lead dog, called him a hero, and that was that, but in reality, there's a little more to it. See, apparently, when Seppala was on his way back to Nome, Togo and a few other dogs managed to break from their line while chasing after some reindeer, and they ran so far that he couldn't find them again. He had no choice but to head back home, but the locals found the dog sometime after he left, and the postman drove him up to the kennel a week later. I know that news didn't travel quite as fast back in 1925 as it does today, but like I said earlier, there were people all over the world paying attention to this story, and they wanted to know who the heroes were. Seppala didn't get back to Nome until two days after the vaccine delivery, and it took Togo another week. How was the press gonna feature them as heroes on the front page if they couldn't even take their picture? Meanwhile, standing two feet away is the guy and his team who actually delivered the medicine. Why wouldn't they use him? Listen, I'm not saying it's right or fair, I just get the logic. And again, Seppala was given his own share of the spotlight down the line. Actually, speaking of spotlight, remember how I said earlier this was only the first batch of medicine and that a larger supply was coming up from Seattle after? Well, when the second batch showed up, another relay race had to be done, only this time, neither Balto nor Toto were involved. This one received significantly less media attention because by the time it happened, the situation in Nome had gotten under control, but a lot of the same mushers were involved in both relays. So shout out to those dudes. Chapter six, retirement. So here's where the story gets kind of sad. You know how in the cartoon, Balta went on to have kids and go on all kinds of adventures with his friends? That was a bit of a fabrication. See, in real life, Balta was neutered when he was six months old, so he was never used for breeding purposes. Instead of going back to Seppala's kennel after his tour in the US was over, Balta and his team were auctioned off to the highest bidder by the company who sponsored the tour and wound up being features of a novelty museum and freak show in Los Angeles. I know, that is truly depressing to hear. Fortunately, George Kimball, a businessman and former prize fighter from Cleveland, Ohio, was disgusted when he saw how the dogs were being treated and organized for them to be brought to Cleveland where they were welcomed with a parade and then taken to the Brookside Zoo. Balto eventually passed away in 1933 and his remains were mounted by a taxidermist before being donated to the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, where you can still see him to this day. Only now he's brown from the light exposure. When it comes to Togo's retirement, that went down a bit differently. After he went on his countrywide tour and won a few more championship races, Seppala left him to live a life of luxury at the new kennel he just opened up in Poland Spring, Maine, where his genes were used to breed a fierce and loyal line of sled dogs that is still used to this day. After enjoying several years of retirement, Togo was put down at the age of 16 and just like you would hope, his master was right there by his side during his final moments. Post-mortem, Seppala had Togo's body mounted and today it's on display at the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race Headquarters Museum in Wasilla, Alaska. As for Seppala, he was involved in many more races in the years after the serum run, but he eventually retired to Seattle, Washington. It was there that he passed away on January 28th, 1967 at the age of 89, exactly 42 years to the day after he left Nome for the serum run. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the messed up origins of Balto. What do you think? A pretty epic story, right? And in my opinion, it's one of the most incredible we've ever talked about. Granted, most of the stories we cover involve magic and whimsy, but still, it feels good to raise awareness about one of the most heroic feats that humans have ever done. 
Thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. We're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So don't forget to sacrifice the five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. If you have any thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, like if you really enjoyed it or are dying to correct my pronunciation of something, hit me up under the Messed Up Origins handles on Twitter and Instagram. And to those who are craving more Messed Up Origins, feel free to check out other episodes of the podcast or look up my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom-made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first. Thank you.